0: Would you join me in prayer as we start our time in the Word? Father, thank you so much that you have spoken to us. Thank you for time to worship, for time to reflect back to you truths about who you are, and for how singing those truths and meditating upon them shapes us. And so we thank you for that time in worship, and we pray now that as we open your Word, and as we look at this passage, you would prepare our hearts for it, that you would help us to listen to your Spirit, to be convicted where we need to, to be encouraged where we need to, and that your Spirit would do the work in each of our hearts to show us how to walk more faithfully with you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We pick up this morning in Matthew chapter 25, and we'll be beginning in verses 14, and we'll go through the end of chapter 25, and this will wrap up our discussion of the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus's final sermon before he goes into his Passion Week and prepares for um, his crucifixion and death and eventual resurrection. And so next week we'll begin looking at those narratives. But for today, we finish this section of Scripture where Jesus is looking toward the future and describing what his second coming will look like. And so specifically, as we look at our passage today, there are two parts of our passage. There's the parable of the talents, and there's the prophecy of the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And I believe that both of these uh, passages, these two pericopes, combine to teach one point. And that point is that believers prepare for Christ's return by faithfully serving their fellow believers with the time, resources, and talents that God has given you. So believers prepare for Christ's second coming by faithfully serving their fellow believers with their time, resources, and talents. That's what I think these two passages combined together teach us. But of course, this story about the talents, which is a fairly familiar story and a familiar parable, fits seamlessly in with the other parables that Jesus has been teaching about so far. You remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus told a parable about two servants, And those two servants, one was faithful and prepared and alert for the Lord's return. The other one was surprised by His return. And so in that passage, we were commanded to be alert, for you do not know the day or the hour that He will come. And then just last week, we looked at the parable of the virgins. There were five faithful virgins who were prepared for His return, and there were five foolish virgins who were not prepared. And so you remember the difference between a wise virgin and a foolish virgin was that the wise virgins were prepared to obey and to go to whatever lengths necessary in their obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. And the foolish virgins had restrictions on their obedience. They would obey up to a certain point, but then that was far enough. And that was all the more they would do. And so our call as believers, as we prepare for Christ's return, was to remove all restrictions and qualifications on our obedience and embrace a wholehearted devotion to Him. Now, as we look at this parable of the talents... Jesus gives us a bit more detail about what that obedience is supposed to look like. So if you left last week thinking, that's all wonderful and all, but I'd really like to have some practical things to do with that, this passage gives you those practical things. And so we'll be walking through what those are. So we pick up in verse 14, and we'll read um, through verse 18. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. The one who received the five talents immediately went and did business with them and earned five more talents. In the same way, the one who received two talents earned two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money." So, a very familiar story. We've all heard this passage before. It has a parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke. Um, In Luke, however, the story is about minas, not talents, and there are ten servants, not three, and all of the servants are given the same amount. And so, there's enough difference between Matthew's account and Luke's account that we believe they're separate accounts, that Jesus told this story on two separate occasions. And that was very common among the rabbis of the day, that they would have sort of a, a stock story that they would apply in different scenarios. What is interesting about Luke's account, that is the same as Matthew's, is both of them are concerned with Christ's return. So both of these stories, although they're told at different times, the context of when they are told has to do with the timing of Christ's second coming, of His return. In fact, Luke says very specifically that Jesus told this story because there were some who were waiting for His return. So, that is the context of both of these stories. And so, it becomes very applicable as we think about all of the things we've been studying the last number of weeks. So, as with all parables, it's important that we identify the characters and the parts of the story and how they apply to the current setting. So, obviously, the master who leaves is Christ, who is preparing to depart, and his return is his second coming. His return again. The servants who He entrusts His possessions to are believers, His disciples, those who are left on earth to carry out His ministry. Now, the difficult part of this story to identify, or perhaps the most crucial part, is what are the talents? What are these things that God gives to His people? Well, a talent would have been the largest monetary amount that Israel would have known. It was the largest dollar amount you could consider in the ancient world. Now, if you look up how much a talent is, you'll find wildly different accounts as to how much a talent is. That's because a talent was actually a weight. And so when you're referring to a talent, you meant a certain weight of a precious metal. So you could have a talent of bronze, a talent of silver, or a talent of gold. And as you know, all three of those would be vastly different amounts. So we're not really sure which kind of metal this uh, talent was. And so conservative estimates of how much money this, uh, this master was handing out to his servants would say that a talent was close to 15 years' wages. So your salary for 15 years' So in modern dollars, we would say that would be equal to hundreds of thousands of dollars. One talent would be equal to hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we're talking about huge amounts of money that this master is leaving with his servants. And that's not the point of the story, but what a picture of the wealth of our Savior, of the riches that are at his disposal to give to his people. I think that's a wonderful reminder as we think about that. So for the, uh, for the individual who was given five talents, that would be close to 75 years' salary. So we're talking about a lifetime of savings that the master is entrusting to this individual. So all of them receive an enormous amount of money. Now, the first point of application, or the first discussion from this, is to recognize that those talents are not just money. Some people will interpret this passage as purely about our financial stewardship, that we only apply this to how we think about our money. And while while you can believe that, I think that is much too restrictive for Jesus' point in this parable. I think that Jesus is talking about something much bigger than just where we invest our money or how we steward the finances that God has given us. I think when this master is talking about his talents, he is talking about the sum total of your life. Everything that you have is a gift from God that is designed to bring him glory. And so when we think about the master giving talents to his servants, we're really talking about everything in your life that you can use to glorify God. So that is your money and your wealth and your possessions, but that's also your talents. That's your intellect and your reason. That's your abilities and your skills, the training and the privileges that you've been given. Everything in your life is consumed in that talent that God God has given you to use to glorify Him. Does that make sense? And so, what we apply from this, or what we think about from this fact, is that everything in your life is a gift from God. Now, have you come to the point where you have recognized that and appreciated that? There is nothing in your life that has been given to you because of your intellect, your wisdom, your skill, or your ability. Everything that you have is a gift from God. Everything that you have is a gift from your Savior. Everything that you have is not because of your skill and ability and wisdom. It is because you serve a benevolent Savior who has given you incredible gifts. Now, the other thing to notice from this context is the differentiation between the servants. One servant receives five, one receives two, and one receives one talent. So, why the difference? Well, the passage says right there, it's because of their abilities. God distributed his wealth based on their abilities. So God's wealth was distributed based on the merit of those who he was distributing to. Now, that is not a popular thought in this day and culture, is it? Absolutely not. No, if, if there's a master who's distributing money, okay, and he has five talents and one talent, okay, that's six talents. Now, I know I'm not very good at math as I demonstrated last week, by telling you that a marathon is 23 miles instead of 26. But I think I can handle this math, okay? So it's five and one, that's six. So if we were dividing that equally, one would have three and one would have three. That would be fair, that would be just. We would all be comfortable with that. But that's not how God functions, does it? No, he gives one five and one person one, And in God's economy, in God's eyes, that is fair and that is just. Now, in our culture, if we saw that, if we saw someone with five talents and someone with one talent, what would we say or what would our culture say? They would say that's because this person was privileged or this person maybe was an oppressor and he earned or he took that from somebody else. And that may be true. There are times when that certainly is the case. However, we also have to understand at least some of the time when we look at these situations where someone has five or someone has more talent and someone has less, that's a God-given difference. And certainly in our story, that is a God-given difference. And so we have to be careful when we look at the culture and always be analyzing what they say. There are times when that difference is because of privilege or is because of Um, extortion, but there are times when that simply is the way God administers His gift. And so, there's a point of application in this for us as well, because if we're the servant who receives one talent, if we can look at other people around us and see people who have more skills, more ability, more possession, it's easy to feel jealous. It's easy to wish that we had what those people had. Rather than being content with a talent that God has given us. And do you realize what you're doing when you have that attitude? You're looking at God and saying, I am not content with the gift that you gave me. I like the gift that you gave them better. And so we're just like kids at Christmas time, looking at the gift our cousin is unwrapping and saying, I want that gift instead of the one that I received. God is sovereign, God is in control, and He gives good gifts to all of His children. And so even those of us who receive one talent instead of five are blessed immeasurably beyond what we could ever deserve or imagine. And so who are we to sit in our discontent and wish that we had the, skill, the skills and talents and abilities that other people had? So, that differentiation in this story is God-given. And so, we see what these individuals did with the talents that God gave them. Two of them, the person who had five and the person who had two, immediately took their talents and put them to good use. Now, this also is an important point to notice in the story. The talents that God gave to these people, which is the money, the possessions that he gave them, was not given to them to use for themselves. It wasn't given to make themselves rich or to make their lives more comfortable. The gifts that God gave to them were given to use for His glory. The assumption that is implied in the passage, and the servants don't even question it, is that you have given me this money, you have given me these possessions, so that I can advance your business, your name, and your glory in this community. There wasn't a hesitation, there wasn't a thought that they would keep those talents for themselves. The assumption is God or the master has given me these things in order to do work and ministry for him. So we see the difference is highlighted between those two servants and the final servant, the servant who is given the one talent, because notice what he does. Verse 18, but he who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, we have to ask the question, why? Why did the servant go and bury the money? What could he possibly hope to gain by that? Well, there is an implied belief in the life of this servant, and that belief is that the master will not come home. If the master does not return, then I can go dig up my talent and suddenly I am wealthy. I have a whole talent of money that doesn't belong to anybody else and that is mine. And so the master has given me this talent and rather than investing it for his glory, I am going to save it in the hopes that he doesn't return and I will be able to keep this talent for myself. And so his motivation is selfish. His motivation is oriented on keeping this talent for himself and creating his own comfort through it. So do you see the difference between the two faithful servants and the servant who buries his talent in the ground? So the first question we have to ask as we analyze these servants' responses to what God has given them is this. Are you using the talents that God has given you Are you using your resources, your skills, your talents, your abilities in a way that brings glory to God if He would return? Or are you living in such a way that does not anticipate or expect the Lord's return? That's the first question we have to ask ourselves as we look at this passage and we analyze these servants. Are we living in a way that is using the things God has given us to further His kingdom and to bring Him glory, or are we using the things that God has given us simply to make our lives more comfortable? That's the first question we have to answer. Well, from there, we pick up in verse 19 with the return of the master. So bear with me as we read a fairly long chunk here. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came, and he settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, "'Master, you have entrusted five talents to me. See, I have earned five more talents.' And his master said to him, "'Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master.' Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have earned two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. So notice that Jesus goes to great lengths to describe the exact same response to both of these servants. Now, that seems repetitive, right? It seems unnecessary, except, of course, that we're dealing with Scripture. So, everything is necessary. And so, why does Jesus give us this exact same response to these two individuals? Well, it should be shocking to us to hear that, because one individual returns with how many talents? Five plus five, that's ten. Okay, I have enough fingers for that. So he comes back with 10 talents. The other one comes back with only four. And yet Jesus responds to them with exactly the same words of praise. How can that be possible? Wouldn't he praise the one who brought 10 more than the one who brought four? That's six talents of disparity between them. I can even do subtraction. I know, on the fly too. So there's six talents of disparity between them. And yet, Jesus' words of commendation and praise are the same for both of them. How is that possible? When one brings ten and one only brings four. Well, that point underlines the theme of this whole passage. And the theme is that God is not concerned with the amounts that we bring back. God is concerned with percentages. Because both of these servants bring back 100% of what they have earned. Everything that they have done, everything they have invested is all for the glory of the master. And when they come back, they return all of it. They don't keep any of it for themselves. And so it's like the story of the widow's mite in the Gospel of Luke, where the Pharisees are there pouring in their their large amounts of offering and dumping in coffers of money. But that amount represents only a small percentage of their wealth. And when the widow comes up and she drops in her two mites, which are worthless, they're, they're less than pennies that she drops into that coffer, Jesus says, she has given her all. And she is more worthy than those who have given those large amounts. Jesus is concerned with percentages not amounts. And so the question we ask as we look at this passage and we examine the lives of these servants is, are we committed to Christ in that way with what God has given us? Are we serving Him with a hundred percent of the skills and abilities and the time that He has given us? Or are we reserving some for ourselves? So that's the first thing that Jesus indicates with that response. He responds the same to them because they both bring back 100%. The other thing that we notice from this is Jesus is more concerned with the way in which they administered his money than the amount. He is more concerned with the character they showed in their work and their service for him than he is with the amount. And so both of these individuals, the one who brings back ten and the one who brings back four, were good and faithful stewards with the things God had given them. And so Jesus commends them because he is more concerned with their character and the way they are administering his wealth than necessarily the amounts that they bring. And so whether they brought back ten or whether they brought back four, the point was that they were good and they were faithful with what God had given them. So good means that they were pure. They were righteous in what they did. They were ethical. They were men of integrity in how they administered the business. Faithful means they persevered even when things were hard. They continued to do the right thing and they never gave up. And so those two character qualities characterized the way in which they conducted the business of their master. And so they are commended for that even though they brought back disparate amounts. And I think this is such a point of application for us as well. Because so often in our lives and in our ministries, what we focus on are the talents that other people have that I don't have. I wish that my marriage looked like their marriage. I wish that my home or my finances looked like their home and their finances. And the point is, those aren't things that God has given to everyone. God chooses to give different gifts to different people. But what God does expect from every one of us is that we would administer the gifts that he has given us with goodness and with faithfulness. And so we spend all of our time wishing that God would give us more gifts rather than using the gifts that God has given us in the way and in the character that he has called us to do. Whatever he has given us, we are called to administer it with goodness and with faithfulness. And so the question is, is that how we are using the gifts and the talents that God has given us this morning? Or are we sitting in our discontent wishing that God would give us more things and more possessions and more abilities rather than just using what God has placed right in front of us? That's the question we have to ask this morning. And so, in contrast, both of those faithful and good servants are then contrasted with the third in verse 24. Now, the one who had received the one talent also came up, and he said, "'Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reefing where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed, and I was afraid. So I went away, and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you still have what is yours.'" But his master answered and said to him, "'You worthless, lazy slave, did you know that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter seed? Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take the talent away from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance.' But from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away and throw the worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so remember, this foolish slave, this worthless slave, has buried his money in the ground in the hope that he would be able to keep it when the master doesn't return. So then, when the master returns, the game is up and he's been caught. And so notice what he does. He's been selfish, he's been lazy, he's wanted to keep this for himself. And so he turns and he blames his sin on a caricature of the master. He paints a picture of the master that is not accurate in order to excuse or justify his sin. Now, the charge he levels against the master is a very serious charge. He accuses the master of exploiting other people's work for his own personal gain. Now, think about that for a moment. That's what he accuses the master of doing, but what has he just done? He has exploited the master's work in order to try to enrich himself. So, he accuses the master of the very thing that he is guilty of. And so, his sin is excused by a caricature of the master. Now, verse 26 has been debated a good bit. I do not believe that this is the master saying that perception is accurate. I think that's more irony or sarcasm, where the master says, even if this is who I was, you still should have behaved differently. I think because of the way the first and second servants act, we can be sure that this is not a consistent picture of the character of the master. He is not someone who exploits others to enrich himself. And so I don't think that's an accurate picture. But when we think about that idea of painting a caricature of the master in order to excuse our sin, we've talked about this before in this place, but every sin is theological. When you choose to commit a sin, you are choosing to believe something false about your God, just like this servant did in this story. When you choose to embrace the sin of anxiety, you are choosing to believe something that is not true about your God. If you choose to embrace the sin of anger or rage or frustration or irritation, you are choosing to believe something that is not true about your God. And so as we do battle with sin in our lives, as we seek to grow personally with the Lord, one of the things we have to become skilled with is knowing who our God is and identifying in our sin what we are choosing not to believe about our god or the false teaching about our god that we believe that gives us permission to walk, to walk into this sin and i think we see a great example of that with this servant in the story so with all of that now jesus continues in verse 31 But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all of the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now some people have tried to define this passage and what follows it as an additional parable. So we have the parable of the talents, and we have a parable followed by the sheep and the goats. I don't necessarily believe that this is talking about a parable. I think what Jesus is doing here is doing a continuation of what he talked about in the parable of the talents. So that scene where the master returns and he brings judgment on the servants and he rewards those who were faithful and he punishes those who were unfaithful, I think now Jesus is saying, and in the future... There will be this time of judgment as well. It's not just a hypothetical thing that I'm talking about in this parable, but there will be a day where I will come and I will separate the sheep from the goats, those who were faithful from those who were not. And so I believe this is a prophecy of what is coming in the future, a description of his second coming. And so the, sh- the sheep are obviously the righteous, those who are being separated to salvation, and the goats are those who are being separated to judgment. And so what is the dividing line that separates the sheep from the goats? Well, let's read on to find out. Verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Verse 40, and the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, To the extent that you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. Now, as we talk about this passage, we have to be clear about something at the front end. Do you recognize that Christianity is the only religion in the world that preaches salvation by grace? It is the only religion in the world where you are not responsible to earn your salvation. Every other religion in the world, whether it's Buddhism or Islam, Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, all of those preach a gospel of good works, that you must try to earn your way into the kingdom to be a good enough person in order to be saved. Christianity is distinct from all other religions in the world because it teaches a gospel according to grace. It is by grace you have been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's important that we remember that and hold to that firmly. However, just as that is a clear teaching of Scripture, an additional clear teaching of Scripture is that if you are saved and if you have experienced that regenerating work of grace, then you will bear fruit that is consistent with that work of grace. And so as Pastor Mark read for us this morning from James, faith without works is dead. And it is that framework by which we interpret this passage. This is not saying that if you are just good to the poor, you will inherit the kingdom. Or if you just give money once a year to certain ministries, you will inherit the kingdom. This passage is talking about something much more nuanced than that. And it is that if you have experienced the regenerating work of grace, you should see a change in how you care for other individuals. That's what this passage is talking about. So the question we have to answer is, so who, are, who do we care for like this? What does Jesus mean when he says, I truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. So what is this group that we are supposed to care for in this way? Well, throughout church history, historians and theologians have identified this as any of the poor and needy in the world. And so some stories that have helped to further this teaching are stories from St. Francis of Assisi. Now, as you know, St. Francis was, before he took his vow of poverty and became a Franciscan monk or the one who established that Franciscan order, he was a wealthy, well-to-do, carefree individual. And so from his earlier days, he would tell a story of, of riding along the road. And as he was going along the road, he saw a leper lying in a ditch next to the road. And so he passed the leper, but he was convicted of compassion for that individual. And so he got off his horse, he ran over to the leper, he knelt down beside him, and he embraced him. Even though he was unclean, even though he was sick and would have given him that disease, he still took that time to stop and out of compassion to embrace him. And as he separated himself from the embrace and laid that leper down, the face of the leper changed And it changed from the face of the leper to the face of Christ. And so he laid him down and then he went on his way. And so it's stories like that that have propagated that view that this passage applies to all of the poor and needy in the world and the compassion we should show to them as believers. Now, Scripture is full of commands and obligations that we have toward the poor and the needy but I do not think that is an appropriate application of this passage and what it is teaching. I think this passage, I think what Jesus means when he says, I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine. I think that phrase defines this or qualifies it to, to the church, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, Those who we have a union through salvation, those are the ones we are obligated to care for in this way. Now, I want you to think about the significance of that for a moment. Jesus tells us that at his second coming, when he comes to judge us, the actions that will matter to Christ, the things that he will use to separate us from the sheep and the goats are so insignificant that you and I won't even remember them. Think about what they say there. Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you sick? We can't even remember times where we helped you. And that's the point. If we have that character of service towards one another, of care for this body, then those actions of kindness and service to one another will be so second nature that we won't even think about it. And that's, again, proof that this is a work of the Spirit. This is a work of regeneration in our hearts, something that God does as we grow in our relationship with Him, and we care for one another. And so, what will stand out to Jesus at His second coming is not who has the biggest church, not who has given the most to missions, not who has brought the most converts to the gospel or anything like that. What will stand out to Jesus at His second coming are the individuals who have served one another Who have cared for those in the body of Christ and have demonstrated that Christ like love for one another. And so I think that's a great application or continuation of what we think about with the parable of the talents. We are supposed to use the things that God has given us, the skills, the abilities, the resources, in order to further his kingdom. Well, what does that look like? That looks like caring for those in this body, caring for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it looks like to be a good and faithful steward of the resources that God has given you. Now, before we close, we have the last section of this passage, which is verses 41 to 46, and it's basically the opposite of what we just read. So those who go into judgment are those who saw a brother who was hungry or needy and did not act on their behalf. And look at the judgment that Jesus gives them. He will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me either. Verse 46 is key. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now as we think about this passage, this is a very important passage for how we think about the reality of the existence of hell as well as the reality of the existence of heaven. It is very popular within Christian circles to think that when an unbeliever dies, they simply cease to exist. It's a doctrine called annihilationism, that unbelievers don't go to a place of eternal torment and suffering, but they go to a place where they just cease to exist. Well, a passage like this does away with that belief, because notice that the eternal punishment that unbelievers face is parallel to the eternal life that believers face. And we know, Scripture is very clear, that the eternal life that we are going to is a life of constant joy and presence and service, of conscious service in the life of our Savior. And so we have to be consistent. We have to confess that what is awaiting those who do not respond to the call of the gospel is a place of eternal Conscious torment, and punishment in hell. And so that verse is very important for expanding those doctrines and teaching those things. And so as we conclude this morning and as we finish Jesus's Olivet Discourse, I think he gives us a wonderful, consistent teaching on how we are to live during this time. As we prepare and await for the coming of our Lord, we prepare for it by faithfully serving our brothers and sisters in Christ, with the talents and the resources that God has blessed us with. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity and its conviction. And Father, I pray that as we leave this place this morning, you would give us insight into ways in our lives that we can be more mindful of serving one another. And Father, as we do that, would it not be to puff ourselves up or to make ourselves look good, but would it be in order to steward and to use the gifts that you have given us, that we would bring glory to your name and honor to your kingdom. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.